Welcome to Sober Discussions. This is Steve and Mike, and sometimes you just need to take out the trash. Hello, and welcome to Sober Discussions. Today we'll be covering episode 12, the history of Valentine's Day and issues with North Korea you may not know about. So let's spin this up. Before we start, I thought it would be fun to have a few facts about Valentine's Day before we start in the history of Valentine's Day. So uh, we have this section from factreceiver.com. Just picked, I think, seven just anecdotal kind of gee whiz kind of facts, as it were. I think we'll just uh, go through them. So in 2011, Iran banned Valentine's cards, gifts, teddy bears, and other Valentine's tokens as part of Islamic Republic backlash against the spread of Western culture. Approximately 1 billion Valentine cards are sent each year around the world. An estimated 2.6 billion cards are sent during the Christmas holidays. So I'm thinking about all the times like you see Christmas cards and it's like half of that. But I mean, that's still a lot of Christmas cards. Mm-hmm. So I just thought that was interesting. Valentine's Day is 14.7 billion industry in the U.S. Wow. It's a lot of chocolate and roses. It is a lot of chocolate and roses, probably diamonds and all that crap too. Uh, one Valentine's Day, some zoos offer the opportunity for people to buy a cockroach, name it after an ex, and then watch it be fed to an animal such as a meerkat. Yeah, is that interesting? So, <laughs> I don't know if I have an ex that I want to like name after a cockroach and feed it to an animal, but I thought that was kind of silly. Uh, a kiss on Valentine's Day is considered to bring good luck all year. So, if you want to look at some more fun facts, uh, we do have that link posted on our blog. Uh, some of them were pretty interesting. I also didn't want to take too much of our time about factoids, considering we have uh, a lot of content to cover. So, uh, Mike, uh, quick introduction. Uh, Valentine's Day occurs February 14th. We all know that. Across the United States and in other places around the world, candy, flowers, and gifts are exchanged between loved ones, all in the same of St. Valentine. But who is this mysterious saint, and where did these traditions come from? So we are going to find a little bit more about that on the history of Valentine's Day. From the ancient Roman ritual of Lupercalia, that welcomes spring to the card-giving customs of Victorian England. The legend of St. Valentine. The history of Valentine's Day and the story of its patron saint is shrouded in mystery. We do know that February has long been celebrated as a month of romance, and that St. Valentine's Day, as we know it today, contains vestiges of both Christian and ancient Roman tradition. But who was St. Valentine, and how did he become associated with this ancient rite? The Catholic Church recognizes at least three different saints named Valentine or Valentinus, all of whom were martyred. One legend contends that Valentine was a priest who served during the 3rd century in Rome, when Emperor Claudius II decided that single men made better soldiers than those with wives and families, he outlawed marriage for young men. Boo! (laughs) Valentine, realizing the injustice of the decree, defied Claudius and continued to perform marriages for young lovers in secret. When Valentine's actions were discovered, Claudius ordered that he be put to death. Still, others insist that it was St. Valentine of Terni, a bishop, who was the true namesake of the holiday. He, too, was beheaded by Claudius II outside Rome. Other stories suggest that Valentine may have been killed for attempting to help Christians escape harsh Roman prisons where they were often beaten and tortured. 
According to one legend, an imprisoned Valentine actually sent the first Valentine greeting himself after he fell in love with a young girl, possibly his jailer's daughter, who visited him during his confinement. Before his death, it is alleged that he wrote her a letter signed from, signed from your Valentine, an expression that is still used in use today. Although the, the truth behind the Valentine legends is murky, the stories all emphasize his appeal as a sympathetic, heroic, and most importantly, romantic figure. By the Middle Ages, perhaps thanks to his reputation, Valentine would become one of the most popular saints in England and France. Yeah, I'd say so, considering that we still, you know, do Valentines. Yeah. You know, every year, whether we like it or not. Um, so, let's go to the origins of Valentine's Day. So, it's a pagan festival in February. Uh, while some believe that Valentine's Day is celebrated in the middle of February to commemorate the anniversary of Valentine's death or burial, which probably occurred around A.D. of 270, uh, others claim that the Christian church may have decided to place St. Valentine's Feast Day in the middle of February in an effort to Christianize the pagan celebration of Lupersalia, celebrated at the Ide of February, or February 15th, Lupersalia was a fertility festival dedicated to Fons, the Roman god of agriculture, as well to the Roman founders Romalius and Remus. So I wanted to talk about Lupersalia and Romulus and Remus. This is likely the first time I read anything about it. Uh, it's pretty weird and certainly seems like something Romans would uh, definitely come up with. Uh, Lupersalia was an ancient pagan festival held each year in Rome on February 15th. Although Valentine's Day shares its name with a martyred Christian saint, some historians believe that the holiday is actually an offshoot of Lupersalia. Unlike Valentine's Day, however, Lupersalia was bloody, violent, and sexually charged celebration awash with animal sacrifice, random matchmaking, and coupling in the hopes of warding off evil spirits and infertility. There's always some weird stuff with every <laughs> holiday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, Mike, can you go to this next section with us? Romulus and Remus. No one knows the exact origin of Lupersalia, but it has been tracked back as far as the 6th century BC. According to Roman legend, the ancient king Am Amulius ordered Romulus and Remus, his twin nephews and founders of Rome, to be thrown into the Tiber River to drown in retribution for their mother's broken vow of celibacy. A servant took pity on them, however, and placed them inside a basket on the river instead. The river god carried the basket at the brothers down and the brothers downriver to a wild fig tree where it became caught in the branches. The brothers were then rescued and cared for by a she-wolf in a den at the base of Palatine Hill, where Rome was founded. The twins were later adopted by a shepherd and his wife, and learned their father's trade. After killing the uncle who, who had ordered the death, they found the cave the cave den of the, the she-wolf who nurtured them and named it Lupersal. It's thought Lupersalia took place to honor the she-wolf and please the Roman fertility god Lupercus. No, I thought it was kind of interesting, um, in between trying to drown a couple of kids because of their mother's fault, to getting rescued, to raised by some wolves, to... Now being raised by humans, and that's how they celebrate Lupersalia. Yeah. Kind of crazy. <laughs> um, let's go to the ritual sacrifice. This started to slowly get a little bit more weird. 
Lupercellier rituals took place in a few places. Lupercell Cave on Palatine Hill and within the Roman open-air public meeting place called the Comitium. The festival began at Lupercell Cave with the sacrifice of one or more male goats, a representation of sexuality, and a dog. The sacrifices were performed by Luperci, a group of Roman priests. Afterwards, the foreheads of two naked Luperci were smeared with the animal's blood using the bloody sacrificial knife. The blood was then removed with a piece of milk-soaked wool as the Lupercelli lapped. Nothing weird at all. No, I'm, I mean, just covering a bunch of people in blood from a couple of sacrificed animals. Yeah, thought it was kind of interesting. That's super weird that, uh... Sacrificing a male goat represents sexuality? Yep. Makes perfect sense to me. Just kidding. Hmm. Uh, it is. Uh, <laughs> let's go to the next section here, Mike. Feast of Lupercal. In ancient Rome, feasting began after the ritual sacrifice. When the Feast of Lupercal was over, the Lupercai cut strips, also called thongs of februa, of goat hide from the newly sacrificed goats. They then ran naked, or nearly naked, around Palatine, whipping any woman within striking distance with the thongs. Many women welcomed the lashes and even bared their skin to receive the fertility rite. It's open to speculation what the lashes represented. During Lupercalia, the men randomly chose a woman's name from a jar to be coupled with them for the duration of the festival. Often, the couple stayed together until the following year's festival. Many fell in love and married. Over time, nakedness during Lupercalia lost popularity. The festival became more chaste, if still undignified, and women were whipped on their hands by fully clothed men. Yeah, so, I mean, instead of whipping them while they're naked, it was just whipping them on their hands while they're clothed. (laughs) That's kind of silly. Anyways. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Yeah. Um, Let's go to the next section. Valentine's Day, a day of romance. Lupercalia survived the initial rise of Christianity, but was outlawed as it was deemed as unchristian at the end of the 5th century when Pope Gallius declared February 14th St. Valentine's Day. It was not until much later, however, that the day became definitively associated with love. During the Middle Ages, it was commonly believed in France and in England that February 14th was the beginning of birds' mating season, which added to the idea of the middle of Valentine's Day should be a day of romance. The English poet, Godfrey Chower, was the first to record St. Valentine's Day as a romantic celebration in his 1375 poem, Parliament of Fowls, writing, For this was sent on St. Valentine's Day, when every foal cometh there to choose their mate. Valentine's greetings were popular as far back as the Middle Ages, Though writing Valentine's didn't begin to appear until the 1400, the oldest known Valentine still in existence today was a poem written in 1415 by Charles, Duke of Orleans, to his wife while he was imprisoned in the Tower of London. Following his capture of the Battlement of Agincourt, the greeting is now part of the manuscript collection of the British Library in London of England. Several years later, it is believed that King Henry V hired a writer named John Lydgate to compose a Valentine's note to Catherine of Bolas. Who's Cupid? Cupid is often portrayed on Valentine's Day cards as a naked cherub launching arrows of love at unsuspecting lovers. But the Roman god Cupid has his roots in Greek mythology as the Greek god of love, Eros. 
Accounts of his birth vary. Some say he is the son of Nix and Erebus, others of Aphrodite and Ares. Still others suggest he is the son of Iris and Zephyrus, or even Aphrodite and Zeus, who, could, who would have both been both his father and grandfather. According to the Greek archaic poets, Eros was a handsome immortal, played with the emotions of gods and men, using golden arrows to incite love and leaden arrows to sow a virgin. It wasn't until the Hellenistic period that he began to be portrayed as the mischievous chubby child he'd become on Valentine's Day cards. Nice. Well, I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, people think it's Roman, but it's really kind of Greek. Greek, yeah. Yeah, it kind of is like this little trickster, kind of like gesture, as it were, and then turn yeah. into a fat, chubby, uh, cupid thing that shoots arrows at people. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, it's kind of interesting. Uh, typical Valentine's Day greetings. Uh, in addition to the United States, Valentine's Day in celebration in Canada, Mexico, the United Kingdom, France, and Australia, and Great Britain, Valentine's Day began to be popularly celebrated by the 17th century. By the middle of the 18th, it was common for friends and lovers of all social classes to exchange small tokens of affection or handwritten notes. By 1900, printed cards began to replace written letters due to improvements in printing technology. Ready-made cards were an easy way for people to express their emotions in a time when direct expression of one's feelings was discouraged. Cheaper postage rates also contributed to an increase in popularity of sending Valentine's Day greetings. Uh, Americans probably began exchanging American-made Valentines in the early 1700s. In the 1840s, Esther A. Howland began selling the first mass-produced Valentines in America. Helen, known as the mother of the Valentine, made elaborate creations with real lace, ribbons, and colorful pictures known as scrap. Today, according to the Greeting Card Association, an estimated 145 million Valentine's Day cards are sent each year, making Valentine's Day the second largest card-sending holiday of the year. Uh, more cards were sent on Christmas. We kind of talked about that a little bit, Mike. Uh, so that just about sums up Valentine's Day. Uh, Mike, any thoughts on that before we go into uh, North Korea? Sounds like there's just, uh, just like some of the other holidays we've kind of looked at, just there's a few weird potential things that's, that kicked it off, but... It always seems like the weird traditions kind of turn into more, I, I want to almost say, like family-appropriate ways to celebrate. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I mean, I wouldn't really, at this point in time, want to, like, cover someone in blood or, like, you know, just whip people just for the sake of doing it. I, I think, you know, uh, chocolate or roses or just a simple hug. I mean, being COVID-19 compliant anyways. But <laughs> uh, as it were, I definitely think that... This is the better direction, Agreed. Um, as it were. So um, the uh, information that we got was history.com. I don't think I articulated that, but I just want to let people know that's the information they got from. So uh, let's jump into our next section with North Korea. So uh, we were just discussing covering the issue with North Korea and what they've been doing behind the scenes that you may not have heard about. So, Mike, we're going to start with an overview on what North Korea has been doing prior to this point, and then we'll cover the resuming 
uh, cooperation of nuclear missile programs and cyber attack funding and closer to the evening. Okay. Sound fair? Okay, cool. So I found a couple of video clips I wanted to cover. Uh, one is from Wall Street Journal uh, from 2019. That's kind of important. We'll talk about it later. And it has a really well-rounded explanation of what's been going on before these articles that we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, so on the second one, though, it's uh, CNN and explains what their programs has been able to produce. Uh, I do think it's kind of crazy. Uh, Mike, can you please play the Wall Street one for us? This site right here is what the international community has long been worried about. The Yongbyon Nuclear Scientific Research Center is North Korea's most important nuclear facility. This is where the country produces plutonium and highly enriched uranium, chemical elements that make nuclear bombs so dangerous and powerful. North Korea said it conducted its latest nuclear tests in 2017, at a time when tensions with the U.S. were running hot. They will be met with fire and fury. And then everything changed. Since the historic Singapore summit last year, President Trump has been courting North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. He's a very talented man. It raised hopes all around the world. Would North Korea really be willing to surrender its nuclear arsenal? But analysts say satellite images of the isolated country suggest a very different story. Despite Kim Jong-un's summit diplomacy, his scientists have aggressively ramped up production of nuclear material and long-range missiles. Kim Jong-un gets to share the stage with world leaders like U.S. President Donald Trump. On the other hand, he also gets to develop his nuclear missile arsenal. You could say he's getting to have his cake and eat it too. So what exactly is North Korea doing right now? Let's take a closer look at satellite images from the last 12 months. The Yongbyon nuclear complex is massive. Hundreds of buildings spread over three square miles. It's located next to a river that cools down the facility's nuclear reactors. At the uranium enrichment facility, we see continued activity around it. Jenny Town is a North Korea specialist who works with former CIA operatives and security experts all over the world. Her team has been analyzing satellite images of Yongbyon for the last seven years, and their opinion is unanimous. North Korea has been producing nuclear material for the past year. Here they've left this cylinder, which looks like it could be a liquid nitrogen container that would be necessary for um, an enrichment process. At first, when it's still on the truck bed, it's here. Um, later on, you'll see it closer to um, the centrifuge building itself. Experts have noticed other signs of activity. Here, you see crowds of employees around the facility. This may be a shipping container delivering materials. Winter also reveals other details. You see, especially in the centrifuge building, there's no snow there where there is snow on the rooftops of other buildings. And so that can be an indicator that this building is being used, that it's heated, and that it's hotter than the other buildings. The Yongbyon nuclear complex has been at the center of denuclearization talks for a long time. During the Six Party talks, uh, blowing up the cooling tower was a sign of North Korea's uh, commitment to denuclearization. However, uh, it proved so far that the North had no intention to denuclearize because since then they have further developed their nuclear weapons arsenal. Uh, their nuclear weapons are, so, are much more sophisticated now than they ever were before. At the Vietnam summit in February, Kim Jong-un offered to dismantle this nuclear center in exchange for lifting U.S.-led sanctions on his country. But the Trump administration refused. Why? Because Washington said Pyongyang needed to dismantle more than just Yongbyon. There is a sophisticated and complex supply chain, including several clandestine sites, 
which defense analysts believe are just as dangerous as Yongbyon. 45 miles from Yongbyon is a factory that experts say manufactures missiles. They essentially carry nuclear warheads to the intended target. The ones produced in this facility are the famous North Korean Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles, or ICBMs, that can reach the U.S. You can see signs of activity, like these trucks, shipping containers, and cranes around the facility. At the beginning of the year last year, Kim Jong-un told his scientists and engineers to mass-produce nuclear warheads and ballistic missiles, and to accelerate efforts for deploying them for action. International sanctions have blocked North Korea's access to some materials needed to build its advanced missiles. And Pyongyang has actually found a way to get around a lot of the sanctions that have been imposed on it. A lot of analysts now believe that North Korea can produce some of the parts for the heavy trucks that it now launches missiles from. And Japan is concerned that Pyongyang is able to import some fine chemicals that can be used to make smartphone screens, but also can be used for weapons of mass destruction. So, what kind of weapons does North Korea have at its disposal right now? Siegfried Hecker, a Stanford University nuclear scientist who has visited North Korea's nuclear facilities, has estimated that North Korea might be capable of producing six or seven nuclear bombs a year. In total, analysts say Pyongyang could possess between 20 and 60 nuclear weapons right now. These could be mounted on one of its new Hwasong-15 rockets, developed in 2017, which are capable of reaching the U.S. In front of the international community, it appeared North Korea had made a concession. Before talks, Pyongyang had not only conducted a nuclear test, but also frequently tested its missiles, including intercontinental ballistic missiles. But around the time of Kim's meeting with Trump in Singapore, the test came to a halt. Right after the first face-to-face -face meeting with President Trump, North Korea even dismantled a long-time test site, the Sohei Satellite Launching Station. This concession was actually relatively easy for them to make because North Korea in many ways has moved beyond these old fixed launch sites and they're firing a lot of missiles now from the back of trucks. And if North Korea is no longer focused on testing, that's only because they're busy producing a lot of these weapons. They're making more of them. After the failed Hanoi summit in February this year, Satellite images showed North Korea rebuilding the site. It was widely viewed as an act of provocation for reaching no deal with the U.S. And that moratorium on testing? Well, that didn't last too long either. In May and June, North Korea fired two short-range rockets into the sea between Korea and Japan. Despite the evidence gathered by security analysts, the Trump administration has been downplaying North Korea's continuing nuclear operations. Do you think he's still building nuclear weapons? Uh, uh, I don't... No, I hope not. He promised me he wouldn't be. <laughs> and commented on whether its nuclear operations are still ongoing. So, while Trump and Kim keep talking, North Korea appears to be quietly doubling down on its nuclear arsenal, right under the nose of the rest of the world. Mike, thoughts on that? That's scary stuff. Yeah, so um, they don't need to have a launch site to do it anymore. You can do right. it from trucks, mm -hmm. right? They dismantled it because they already have like four other facilities that they can produce it from. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. Well, they can store them anywhere. I mean, if they can launch them from a truck, they can store them anywhere they want. Right. So they they can go, they, they could have somebody go tour their facilities and have nothing there and still just have them hidden away somewhere else. So. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that we didn't take it more seriously i'm a little frustrated about because if people are doing like 
test launches and things like that for ballistic missiles while they're talking about, you know, building nuclear warheads at the same time. It doesn't take a third grader to figure out what is going on. You know what I mean? It's like they're either preparing to engage in World War Three, or they're preparing to be able to defend themselves when World War Three happens. And either way, uh, it's a lot of power. Yep. Exactly. So uh, that that was the first clip that I wanted to share. Uh, the next one goes a little bit more in depth that I wanted to share. This is from CNN talking about their missile program. You can play that for us. This picture purports to show Kim Jong-un with a miniaturized nuclear weapon. People laughed at it when it came out last year, but now if they believe this is the real deal, what does it show us? Well, it would suggest that this would be about two feet across. Experts say it might weigh 500, 600 pounds, something like that. And it would have potentially the destructive potential of those bombs that you mentioned, which the United States dropped on Japan 72 years ago this week. But look at the difference in size. Each of these was 10 to 11 feet long, weighed around something around 10,000 pounds. These had to be carried by a heavy bomber. This is a different thing altogether. In this case, maybe you are talking about something that can fit in the nose cone of one of their existing missiles. If that is the case, it changes the game because their last missile test went 2,300 miles up into space, way above the space station, way above many satellites out there. Yeah, it only went 621 land miles, but that's because it basically went straight up and came straight down. Some scientists say if you flatten out that trajectory, if you fire it across the Earth, then you could reach Guam, you could reach Hawaii, Alaska, and some scientists say, based on the weight of the payload, in theory, they could reach about half of the United States and some major cities in here. Mike, thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, it, it makes sense that as we get more advanced in our technologies that they're going to be able to make things smaller. I mean, computers, when they first started, they were the size of a building, and now, they're, right. now they can fit in your hand. Right. You're, and it's kind of the same thing with this. And, and uh, capabilities just increase more and more. And so it's kind of terrifying to think what anyone's capable of. I, I mean, North Korea's got these missiles, but, I mean, who else has the capability of the same kind of stuff? It's definitely pretty crazy what's out there. I, I agree. That article was in 2017, and the one before that was in 2019. So that was like two years of development Yeah. Um, going to that. So... Um, Thought that was important. Thought, like, talking about their capability and their production um, just before we get into a little bit further in. Um, so, uh, continuing uh, forward, this article came out on February 9th of 2021. Uh, it's a little important to consider because the previous clip that we covered uh, was in 2019, uh, like we talked about. So, this is from Bloomberg.com. Uh, Iran and North Korea resumed cooperation on missiles, UN says. So this isn't the United States, this is the United Nations. Mm -hmm. So, Mike, this article came out on February 2021. Uh, so this has been pretty recent article I thought was pertinent. Uh, Iran and North Korea cooperated on long-range missile development projects last year, according to a confidential United Nations report that may pressure the Biden administration to respond to one of its first major geopolitical crises. This resumed cooperation is said to have included the transfer of critical parts, 
with the most recent shipment associated with this relationship taking place in 2020. An independent panel of experts monitoring sanctions on North Korea said in the report citing a member state. Frequently on the fringes of international diplomacy, North Korea and Iran have long had a secretive, mutually beneficial relationship. The UN panel received information showing that Iran's Shihan Hi Ali Mohammed Research Center received support and assistance from North Korea missile specialists for a space launch vehicle, and the North Korea was involved in certain shipments to Iran. So we're sending this back and forth right now uh, from Iran being able to more or less launch something that can go into out of our orbit more or less, mm-hmm. is what that's been saying. In response to the allegations, Iran told the panel members that a preliminary review of the information provided to us by the panel indicates that false information and fabricated data may have been used in investigations and analyzes of the panel, according to the report, which was seen by Bloomberg. Uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has said the administration is reviewing former presidential Tr- Donald Trump's diplomacy toward North Korea. He's also said that Iran has to return to compliance with the 2015 nuclear deal the Donald Trump administration withdrew from before the U.S. considered sanctions relief against Tehran. Any thoughts on that, Mike? So Iran and North Korea are... They're like BFFs right now. Yeah. Yeah, and they're sending information back and forth. They're claiming that the U.N. has false information that they're stating, but I think I feel more inclined to believe the U.N. over to... Uh, dictators, personally. <laughs> personally. <laughs> and especially, I mean, it already looks sketchy in the first place. If if something's looking sketchy and you want to clear the air, you come forward and you, like, be truthful about it rather than just say, oh, no, you've got wrong information, and then just dismiss it. Right. Exactly. A little bit of deflection. Yeah. Anyways, thought that was important. Uh, Mike, if you can do that next section for us. Kim shows off huge mobile missile. Kim Jong-un's regime has rolled out several new models of ballistic missiles in recent months that are either bigger and more powerful or easier to move and fire. At an October military parade in Pyongyang, he doubted a huge ICBM that... Oh, he he debuted a huge ICBM that appeared to be the world's largest road mobile missile and capable of carrying multiple warheads. The panel cited an assessment by a member that uh, by a member state that it's highly likely that a nuclear device can be mounted on the ICBMs and it is also likely that a nuclear device can be mounted on the shorter range missiles. The member state, however, stated it is uncertain whether the DPRK had developed ballistic missiles resistant to the heat generated during reentry, the panel said, referring to the official name of North Korea. The panel also looked into the drones displayed by North Korea during the October parade, identifying them as a Mavic 2 prototype manufactured by China's SZDJI technology uh, company. The company has yet to respond to the panel's inquiry, the panel added. Yeah. Mike, any thoughts on that? I mean, there's kind of a lot of speculation in all of that, but uh, speculatory or not, I mean, just kind of as we've been looking at all these things, it's all kind of shady looking stuff. Yeah, kind of all piecing together. I thought it was important that the panel try to ask the company that produced that particular one that they identified as that, and they had, like, no comment. (laughs) 
Yeah. This is China that was shipping to North Korea, right? That's how they had it in their parades, right? Which, of all people, you, I mean, China's not... I, I would think China would be more forthcoming with us, you know? No, I, I don't think they really like us that much. Well, if I'm being transparent, transparent, I'm, I'm sure they like shipping us stuff. Maybe that's <laughs> yeah, as far they, as it goes. Yeah, they, they do. But I mean, we've even had, you know, trade wars and stuff with them, you know, I guess that's true. You know, different things like that. So tensions have been kind of high with China as of late. So be interesting to see how kind of all that plays out. Um, any kind of other things before we jump to the next section? Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's continue. This is the hill.com. So, they had an article that I thought was important that I wanted to cover. It's cyber attacks helping North Korea fund nuclear weapons and missiles, UN says. Um, so, the report delivered to members of the UN Security Council on Monday estimated Pyongyang has stolen 316.4 million since 2019. Panel noted North Korea officials have also produced fissile material for nuclear weapons during the same period, Associated Press. So uh, this is pretty recent. Um, I believe, can you open up that article for me and tell me what date that came from? February 9th. So, yeah. About a week ago. Pretty, pretty recent <laughs> within the last week. North Korea displayed new short-range, medium-range, submarine-launched and intercontinental ballistic missile systems and military parades. The report said it announced preparations for testing and production of new ballistic missile warheads and development of tactical nuclear weapons and upgraded its ballistic missile infrastructure. The report recommended sanctions on four North Koreans. The expert further says the country has been able to launch stolen cryptocurrency into government-backed currency. Preliminary analysis based on the attack vectors and subsequent efforts to launder the illicit proceeds strongly suggest links to North Korea, the report said, according to the AP. The UN Security Council has imposed numerous sanctions on North Korea over the last 15 years to discourage nuclear development, but the report suggests Pyongyang has found ways to conduct malicious cyber activities and access financial channels to which it was supposedly cut off. Over most of the year, the country has had its borders sealed due to the coronavirus pandemic, cutting off went even illicit access to GOZP said. Former President Trump developed a warm personal relationship with North Korea leader King Jong-un and frequently expressed confidence in his intentions towards U.S., which, Mike, I really don't think was the right call. I agree. <laughs> I think we could have done a lot more other than, oh, I think he's fine. I don't know. And I don't think he is, but, I mean, there's a lot of information, especially from the UN, stating that, yeah, that's kind of a problem. I mean, you think about movies where you've got, like, the antagonist, the protagonist, and the antagonist is uh, always the kind of guy who acts like your friend. Right. And then takes you out. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I'm not going to claim that's what North Korea is doing, but, um, I mean, everything we've been reading, it, it's kind of shady stuff and they're shady stuff. trying to hide things. So, I mean, what else are we supposed to think, you know? I agree. No, I, I completely agree. And I think that's why it was important that I wanted to bring that up. I don't know if too many people have heard or read about that. So I thought it was important to bring up. Um, 
President Biden, by contrast, has called the North Korean leader a thug and criticized his predecessor's handling of U.S.-North Korean relations. Huh, wonder why that is. It's interesting. Uh, just before we wrap things up, though, Mike, I wanted to cover a quick article from an independent source that expressed what they thought about Biden's administration and how they should take action with North Korea and uh, wanted your opinion on it. So this is from the CFR.org. Uh, the section that I wanted to cover was what actions should Joe Biden administration take towards North Korea, if you can read that for us. The Biden administration should privately attempt to establish reliable, high-level channels of communications with the North Korean leadership for use in the event of a crisis. In close coordination with South Korea, the Biden administration should present its objectives and parameters for pursuing peace and denuclearization policies toward North Korea, affirming Kim's pledge to work toward complete denuclearization and U.S. pledges to work toward the establishment of normal relations as contained in the 2018 Singapore Declaration. If Biden affirms the Singapore Declaration, North Korea should ease its rhetoric around the United States' hostile policy and affirm its willingness to implement de the declaration. Based on this framework, the Biden administration should propose working-level negotiations with North Korea designed to contain and manage mutual threats and reduce military tensions in a step-by-step -step manner. These negotiations should seek to contain and gradually reduce the North Korean nuclear threat and identify practical steps to establish peaceful U.S.-North Korea relations. One of the lessons of the past four years is that Trump-style personal diplomacy should be a part of a strategy for achieving national security objectives and not conducted to achieve political efforts that support personal objectives. The Biden administration should preserve stability on the Korean Peninsula by working with South Korea to maintain effective conventional and extended nuclear uh, deterrence including the continuation of joint exercises necessary to ensure military readiness. We should also explore measures for reducing risks of military conflict along the demilitarized zone dividing North Korea and South Korea. Yeah, so I thought that was important. Uh, when we talk about North Korea and South Korea, have you heard much about that? Not a lot, but I am someone who doesn't really watch okay. news or pay attention to too much. It's kind of like no man's land, right? Uh, we do have a lot of military personnel in South Korea to kind of keep the North in check mm -hmm. a little bit closer. But there's like this great divide there. Um, I wonder, Mike, can you pull up anything about the... Um, the border? The border, yeah, North and South Korea. They have anything as of recent, maybe like a... Uh, yeah, demilitarized zone, something like that. Demilitarized zone is a region of the North Korean Peninsula that democrates North Korea and South Korea. It roughly follows latitude 38 degrees north, the 38th parallel. The original democration line between North Korea and South Korea at the end of World War II. Uh, so the demilitarized zone uh, incorporates territory on both sides of the ceasefire line that existed at the end of the Korean War. So this is, you know, the biggest thing that happened in the Korean War. You heard much about the Korean War at all? Okay, maybe we'll visit that while we're at it, kind of go down the rabbit hole. was created by pulling back the respective forces 1.2 miles along each side of the line. Runs about 150 miles across the peninsula from the mouth of Han River to the west coast to the little south of the North Korean town of Kosong on the east coast. Located within the DMZ is the Truce Village, about five miles east of Kimsong, 
North Korea. It was the site of the peace discussion during the Korean War, and it has since been the location of various conferences over issues involving North Korea and South Korea and their allies. So um, we've got this kind of zone right now. We read that uh, it's about one mile across, and that's kind of like um, the ceasefire zone. Mm -hmm. But it, it was pretty bad um, in the Korean War. We got involved in it. Uh, let's. Can we find a um, article with just a brief synopsis for, of the Korean War? The Korean War, June 25th, 1950 through July 27th, 1953. At the end of World War II in 1945, Korea was freed from Japanese control. North Korea was occupied by the Soviets, while the South was occupied by American forces. By 1948. The country was divided in half at the 38th parallel, with the capitalist South ruled by Syngman Rhee and the communist North ruled by Kim Il-sung. The Soviet troops withdrew from Korea in 1948, and U.S. troops withdrew in 1949. However, North and South Korea, as enemies of one another, would not accept the border between them as permanent. The North Koreans attacked South Korea on June 25, 1950, advancing across the 38th parallel. Around 75,000 troops of the North Korean People's Army defeated the Republic of Korea's army with success, capturing the capital city of Seoul, then occupying the whole of South Korea except for Busan. This was a problem as President Truman in the United States wanted to contain the spread of communism by preventing the domino effect. That is, if Korea fell, so would other countries to the ideology. Like Vietnam. South Korea <laughs> appealed for Crazy. support, and the United States <laughs> pushed a resolution through the United Nations Security Council. The USSR did not use its veto power, as it was boycotting the council because the new communist China was not accepted. In China's seat was the pro-US Chinese nationalist government of Taiwan. An appeal was made by the Security Council for North Korea to withdraw its troops, but was ignored. As a result, Approval was granted for a UN army made up of an international force of 16 nations to send help to South Korea, commanded by General Douglas MacArthur. The UN troops, composed mainly of Americans, landed in South Korea in early July, but were soon pushed back on the defense by the North Korean forces, forming a perimeter around Busan to defend the line until reinforcements arrived in August. Now that their position was strengthened, MacArthur went on the offensive. On September 15th, the U.S. Marines X Corps launched an amphibious assault at Incheon. The North Korean troops were pushed back on the retreat over the 38th parallel, and soon Seoul was recaptured along with the whole of South Korea by the end of the month. Now, MacArthur was to go beyond the initial idea of containment. Truman, worried of a Chinese response, nevertheless approved, and U.N. troops moved into North Korea on October 7, 1950. On October 12th, they captured Pyongyang, the North Korean capital, and then the Yalu River, which was the border with communist China. China retaliated by helping the North Koreans, sending 250,000 Chinese troops. The UN troops, overwhelmed by this new force, were pushed out of North Korea with heavy losses. By January 1951, Chinese and North Korean troops had captured Seoul. General MacArthur wanted to use the atom bomb on China, and was dismissed for insubordination by President Truman, who went back to a policy of containment. In June 1951, more UN troops were sent to Korea, eventually driving the North Korean army to the 38th parallel and stabilizing the front. Now, a stalemate set in. 
In July, peace talks began, but a compromise could not be found. Meanwhile, fighting continued, and American pilots fought in the air against Soviet pilots using Chinese jet fighters and wearing Chinese uniforms. General Dwight D. Eisenhower took over as president in early 1953 and sought an end to the war. After two years of negotiation, an armistice was signed on July 27, 1953 at Panmunjom on the 38th parallel. A demilitarized zone was set up, which stands to this day. Kind of crazy, huh? Yeah. So Korea's been really bent about us, really ever since. Um, they're really big into, you know, communism, dictatorship kind of stuff. And um, obviously we're, as America, isn't necessarily up for that. Yeah, interesting. Um, and I didn't know that we were going to nuke them. Like, we wanted to nuke them, and then Truman's like, no, let's not let's not drop a nuclear bomb. I think that was a good call. <laughs> I think that was a good call. I a agree. great call. Yeah. yeah. There's no reason to... I don't know, man. I, I think if nuclear warfare happens, then it's just, like, the end. Everybody's going to just launch them everywhere, and it's yep. just... It's, That's it. It's too much. Like, nobody should just... Just don't do it. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice to everyone be reasonable, and if we had, you know, issues to bring it, you know, the UN. And, and I do understand, like, declaring war and stuff like that, but nuclear <laughs> nuclear weapons or even chemical weapons, like, once you start down that road, it's, it's the path of destruction, for sure. Yeah, and it's just, I don't know, it's dumb. It's unfortunate. I, it's, I think about... Um, like, we've made some big, dumb mistakes that we never should have. Like, I mean, you, you think about Hiro Hiroshima. Hiroshima, yeah. And that shouldn't have happened. Uh, I don't know. It, it's, it's, I guess it's hard because uh, how do you settle problems? And it just always seems to be war. But, man, in my opinion, dropping a bomb on anybody is never the answer, ever. I mean, so many innocent people get just yeah. wiped out that don't have anything to do with it. Yeah, and collateral damage, man. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah, that's that's war. <laughs> that's that's uh, the bad part about war. The unfortunate you know. truth. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, I thought that was important since you didn't know what the demilitarization zone was and yeah. uh, going on with Korea. Uh, we do have a lot of U.S. forces there, um, trying to keep the peace and stuff like that. So, I do think it's important to have countermeasures. If anyone was to launch it, especially like in North Korea, if that's like a big problem, like it makes total sense to me to have countermeasures so that doesn't affect anybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, for sure. Um, anyways, uh, Mike, any other kind of thoughts on that? I don't think so. It's just crazy the power that we all have, and <laughs> it's too much power. Yeah, I uh, I remember seeing a satellite image in, like, I think it was the 60s or 70s, and South Korea had lights, and the North Korea had nothing. No lights at all from a satellite. Hmm. It's just how um, vastly different it was, because hmm. it's just it's a crazy place over there. Um, I remember hearing a story one time about a person that wanted to, that visited North Korea, um, wanted to take one of the propaganda posters... Uh, back home got found out that he was going to take it and was like put in like prison like hard manual labor for the rest of his life Ugh. you know stuff like that Man. so it's pretty pretty crazy over there um yeah i wouldn't say north korea should be anybody's friend in my opinion 
but maybe that's just me talking. <laughs> Sounds like they have made friends with Iran and China. Yeah, they sure have. I mean, yeah, definitely. And especially like, okay, so we try to sanction them. They find a workaround, sanction them again, workaround. Now they're in, you know, cryptocurrency and cyber attacks and stuff like that. It's just, just if there's a will, there's a way. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I definitely think we should um, try to do something for sure. And I think just having a blind eye to it wasn't the right solution. Well, yeah, that uh, Biden administration suggestion we read, I thought was good. Yeah, I thought that was a solution. I thought yeah. it was a, a reasonable solution. I mean, yeah, we're calling them thugs and stuff, but yeah, like, let's do something about it. Like, uh, anyways, I thought it was important. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on in North Korea right now, uh, but I did want to cover that because I did find some very, like, uh, I would say reasonable articles that I was able to find some reasonable sources. Anyways, uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for supporting our podcast. If you would like to check out our sources from today's episode, please visit our blog at soberdiscussions.blogspot.com. And if you would like to join the discussion, email us at soberdiscussions at gmail.com. Thank you.